1: Hey, uh, we've actually got a little bit of territory to cover this morning. Um, I'm hoping to do a little bit of exegesis with you guys. I'm hoping to uh, do a little bit of a critique, a social and a cultural critique. And I'm hoping to extend to you uh, a little bit of an invitation. Um, and so what I want to do is, is I think that uh, it's always good to come to church with your Bibles. Um, it's pretty easy these days because we've all got uh, sort of tech savvy versions of it. Um, so if you've got a paper Bible, turn to uh, Mark chapter 11 and uh Quickly, uh, get out your phone or your iPad or whatever it is you've got, and you can uh, you can click on the click on whatever version of the Bible you've got there. Open it up, turn to Mark chapter eleven, and as you're doing that, I'm just going to pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the story of each and every person here. I want to thank you for the way that you have. Uh, met each and every one of us personally, that you have revealed uh, aspects of your character, that you have loved on us, that you have granted us grace and peace and joy in all different areas of our lives. And God, I wanna thank you in this moment that you have been with us through the messiest of times, that you have loved us at our darkest and you have been with us even when it feels like you're not. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that all of our stories often bring us to, to different places, to different opinions, to different worldviews, to different understandings. And Lord, I love that we are in this church where where we can sit next to one another and hold some of those things, indifference with one another and yet still love one another and still point our attention and our affection towards you. And Lord, I want to I ask that this morning you would continue to stir something in us, stir a passion in us, a, a desire to, to uh, live out our lives well, to pursue you well, to embody uh, your, your kingdom agenda in, in, the, in the way we do things, in the way we talk with one another, and the way we move forward. So do a good work in us this morning, I pray. Amen. Mark 11, we are uh, starting at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, "Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, uh, who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." Mark 11:12 to25 a little bit of exegesis, what's going on in this story. There's a couple different things we can look at. I think Jesus, in embodying all of the human experience, uh, experiences hangriness. Anyone familiar with hangriness? Right? Yes? Well, you're so hungry, you're angry, right? Here we have it, the theological defense for hangriness. That's it. You're allowed to laugh, guys. It is funny, right? But there's actually, something really, there's actually something really significant going on in this story. Um, and Mark, you've got to understand this about the Gospel of Mark. It's, a, it's like a really quick telling. This, this Gospel was sort of written somewhat hurriedly. We can sort of see from the language, uh, the original audience, who it was meant for. It was kind of written in a, little bit, in a little bit of a hurry. It's very short. It kind of just does these little snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry, right? And about half of it, is completely dedicated to the, to the death and the resurrection of Christ, okay? So there's all of these little snapshots of things that are kind of going on. And we find ourselves in this story at an instance where Jesus goes into this temple and flips everything over, flips all these tables, gets completely angry at what's happening around him. And yet it's sandwiched in between this, these two encounters with a fig tree. Like we've got to take note of the sequence of things. Sometimes, why are these order of events being presented? Why are these things together? I don't. Know if, I don't even know if uh, many of us would even notice something like that in our little word for today readings or whatever. But have you noticed that the temple, this temple judgment, takes place in between these two encounters with the fig tree? This tells us something. This whole story, this little, this little chunk that we're looking at here is played out as part of a symbolic judgment on the nation of Israel. This is what's happening here. This is Jesus establishing that, that, that the tides are shifting. This is why the fig tree is important. Okay, the fig tree is a, is a symbol of the nation of Israel. It's a metaphor for it. This would have been a really, a really easy thing for people in first century Israel to understand. You see, the fig tree was able to produce fruit in really harsh uh, climates, in really harsh situations. And Israel as a nation, despite its really hard story and the things that it had been through, was called by God to produce fruit to be a nation that was a light to the rest of the world this is what they were called towards what they were invited towards as a nation and so jesus comes to this thing and he sees this fig tree and it's it's not just that he's hungry but he walks up to it and he says look at this tree it's in full leaf but it's not producing any fruit this is this is telling for israel it's in full leaf but it's not producing any fruit and then He goes into the temple. The temple, the primary purpose of the temple is that this is where people went to experience reconciliation with God, restoration with God. They would go and they would offer their sacrifices and, uh, and they would kind of go through these rituals. And it was this point of reconnection where things are restored to the point where they're meant to be. And so Jesus comes in and He starts flipping over these tables, getting, getting angry about what He says. And what He's saying in this moment and this symbolic act of judgment is this system, this thing that's been set up, it's not working anymore. You've turned it into something that it was never meant to be and it's done. And then they have this moment the next day when they leave and they're walking past this fig tree again and suddenly the fig tree's dead. It's no longer a thing anymore. And then Jesus talks about the power of God and this this power of prayer and looking for those things. Then he talks about this power of forgiveness and it's this and what he's pointing to is, the, is, is this cosmic significance, this shift that's taking place and that, and that uh, the power of God and grace have some significant role in, what's, in, in, in what is to come next and what is unfolding in this story. So there's this huge sort of story going on and this temple judgment happens in between the story of the fig tree the way people were reconciled to God before is shifting and changing. The story is changing and it's happening through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we see Jesus get, uh, get angry, display his righteous anger one other time. We can see it. Uh, you can find a version of it uh, in Matthew 23. This is where uh, he basically goes at the Pharisees, calls, calls them a brood of vipers, accuses them of being dirty on the inside of their hearts and focusing too much on the outside. And he's kind of really going after them. But what's interesting is that, is that anytime Jesus gets angry, it tends to be a critique of the religious, a critique of the religious structure, um, a critique of, uh, of, of the religious way of believing, of, of trying to be perfect, of trying to look a certain way and act a certain way and do a certain, uh, do a certain bunch of things that would get you into good stead with God. And so he gets, he gets so angry, so frustrated when he looks upon the religious structures of his day when he looks upon self-righteousness. And so here's what's interesting about that, okay? So this is all happening within the context of this unfolding story for Israel. But my senses, and something that I I feel like is a bit of a a worry for me, and this is where the critique comes in for, for the Western world today, is that we have misappropriated verses and stories like this Um, and use them as a means of justifying and imposing our own opinion, viewpoint, and worldview upon others. Now, let me like caveat this just a little bit. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get angry about things because there are things in this world that we 100% should get angry about. There are injustices against humanity, against creation that should stir up something inside of us. And we should speak to those things and we should put our hand up to play a part in redeeming those things and fixing those things and being a part of God's answer to those things. But I am deeply concerned with the way that we talk about these things and the way we engage with these things. And far too often, I sort of hear these, these words like righteous anger and oh, Jesus got righteously angry. And so, and so I, I, have, I have to get righteously angry. And I have a right to be righteously angry. And My fear is is that we misappropriate these verses and apply them to our lives in in, in an ultimately unhealthy manner. And so my critique is of how we talk about things. And this is not just in the church, mind you. Right? This, is not just a, this is not just in the church. There's a worrying trend across our whole Western culture. We feel free to say what we want in the way we want it. And such is the political and social landscape at the moment that we have created an unhealthy dichotomy of us and them. That's how the world's kind of getting divided now. We see it each and every day. Um, and, uh, and as a result of this social narrative, the church is turning on its own as people begin to argue over what it means now to be a real Christian, like a real Christian. Those are the conversations that are happening now and it's causing division in the church. We, are, uh, we have alienated, bastardized and demonized anyone who thinks differently to us. This is what's going on in our culture at the moment. This is what's being created as, as, as all, a whole melting pot of things have come into effect. Like 20 years ago, what happened in a US presidential election never really affected what happened in New Zealand. But suddenly like the way people talk to each other in New Zealand shifts because of what we're exposed to on social media. Oh, let's talk about social media for a second, right? I think Facebook is like a war zone of overturned tables. Just a quick pop quiz, okay, real quick pop quiz. Whose life has been meaningfully changed for the better by what's happened on a comment thread? Anyone? Has anyone else's opposing view ever changed yours? No way. Who's engaged in a comment thread? Moment of honesty. Hands up. Three people? I don't think so, right up. I'm friends with most of you. Man, the things that happen on Facebook worry me, the way we talk about each other, the way we talk to each other. It's kinda like when we're behind a keyboard, suddenly like there's no victims, we can say whatever we want. And I've seen some horrific things said in the name of Christ. And what's fascinating about it is that, is that it creates this dichotomy, right? There's us and them. So you have like the conservative Christians who are, who are all about the truth and sticking to the literal world of the Bible. And then you've got those liberal Christians over here who actually care about the children and the immigration. But no, no, no. Uh, you know, as uh, Christians, we're supposed to be law-abiding citizens. Um, and so, you know, don't cross the border. And then over this side, no. But there's children being taken away from their parents, right? And what happens? Fight, 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 fight. I'm right. You're wrong. Man, in this room we have different opinions about those things. And it doesn't even affect us, it's in America. But it's not just that, right? It's the way we treat the LGBT community. It's the way we engage with each other over our theological beliefs. It's all sorts of things. Any, any kind of instance, we get sucked into these things and social media plays a huge part in it. And what it's created is, is this dichotomy of us and them. And what happens is it sort, of, it sort of solidifies people in these little groups, in these, in these little tribes, and suddenly the story begins to shut off for other people, and it becomes harder and harder to get in. And so even the church, and I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the global church, it just builds its own walls higher and higher as it tries to dig in and figure out what it is we stand for. And then we've spoken a lot in church about being a centered set that we're trying to not have boundaries and trying to walk with people towards the central figure of Christ, but it becomes harder and harder and harder in a culture that encourages division over unity. And that's the world we live in. And the church is is, is buying in like no one's business, actively participating. Satan doesn't need to do a thing in church because we're doing a good enough job of tearing ourselves apart. oh oh man, I'm way more passionate about this than what I thought I was going to (coughs) be. We have alienated, bastardized, and demonized anyone who thinks differently to us. And like, I know I'm guilty of it. I know many of us are guilty of it. And it begs the question, how do we engage meaningfully with what we see in the world? And how do we cross the social, political, and religious divides that are being created around us? How do we engage meaningfully? Delete your Facebooks for a start. I I'm really anti-Facebook today as well. <clears throat> this, this, is, this is where it comes to, it, it comes down to this invitation. Because my sense is that in regards to stories like this, regards to stories like Jesus coming to the temple and displaying his righteous anger, the, the story of Jesus coming before the Pharisees and, and, and critiquing the way they are, are calling people towards some kind of piety, um, <clears throat> My sense is that we need to leave those stories as being pivotal and important declarations that speak to the divine and cosmic significance of Christ. So those stories are important for us to read. They're important for us to sit with. They're important for us to to reflect upon because they shape who Christ is in our lives and and the weight of his mission. But they are not there to offer instruction for us on how we deal with what we see around us, of how we imprint and justify our worldview and our positions. That's not what they're there for. That's why I want to at least propose. They tell the story. They establish God's new thing that is being done through Christ. But they're not instructions for how we deal with what we don't like. And this is the thought I've been sitting with. And you know, sometimes when you're driving down the street and you have a thought and it's like, oh, I feel like there's weight in this. This is what I think the invitation, the invitation of Christ is not to flip tables, but the invitation of Christ is to come to the table. The invitation of Christ is not to flip tables. The invitation of Christ is to come to the table. The table is open. There are plenty of stories in scripture that talk about a banquet, a banquet for all, where all get to come and engage and meet with Christ and enter into the love and grace of God. The invitation of Christ is not to flip tables. The invitation of Christ is to come to the table, to sit at the table and to partake of the meal. This is an invitation to consider others. Here's the question I, wanna, I, I want you to think about when, when I say something like that. Uh, what is it that others bring to the table? What is it that others bring to the table? Do they bring worldview, experience, Do they bring some kind of past trauma or suffering? Do they bring some sort of academic learning of study that they've done? Do they bring some kind of alternative cultural perspective to us? Like what is it that they bring to us? uh, one of my favourite things is uh, uh, in, in one of the, a book that I read is, is by Peter Fitch, who has spoken here before. But he talks about two types of faithfulness, one type of love, and he talks about Christians in particular. Like there's actually this divide, and he says on one side uh, you see Christians who value um, s- uh, sticking as much as possible to the literal word of God, and then you have Christians on the other side who who are making an earnest attempt to identify the heart of Scripture and trying to live out and uh, live in accordance with that. And he says, actually, what we need to understand is that this is two types of faithfulness, but still one type of love, the love of God. And this is the thing is that on both sides, there is an alienation and a demonization of the other, when in reality, they're both making an earnest attempt to stay true to God. Now, Now, of course, there's gonna be tensions created in that. But what would happen if we considered the other, what they brought to the table, what they might stir in us, what they might call forward in us? There's something meaningful in that. The second thing is this is that this invitation to the table is an invitation for us to consider ourselves. What What do I bring to the table? Do I bring a worldview? Do I bring my own experience? Do I bring my own trauma, suffering? Do I bring my own sense of learning? Do I bring my own perspective, my own cultural perspective? What is it I bring? What are those things? And then how do I control those things and communicate those things well in a meaningful manner? I think this is always a conversation about how we talk and how we engage with one another. To me, James 3, 17 to 18 is one of like the best things the best things I've ever stumbled across in the Scriptures. Just in terms of how I engage with others, uh, James 3, 17 to 18 says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. How many uh, Facebook comment threads have you seen like that? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Who's seen a Facebook comment thread like that? Not me. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, the problem with division is it's about tearing people apart. It's not peaceful. When people begin to feel alienated and demonized and set apart from the other, that doesn't create peace. That doesn't cultivate righteousness. What it does is it creates conflict, inner conflict, conflict between groups, social conflict, separation, disconnectedness, isolation. And we wonder, we wonder why we live in a world, in a Western culture that's struggling with mental illness like never before in history. We wonder We're driving each other apart. The wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's how we can talk about things. That we can be open to other people's opinion. We can earnestly consider it and listen to them. Um, A philosopher that I've been listening to, Pete Rollins, a little bit on podcast, he spoke recently how the goal of a good conversation— is to not actually try and convert the other person to your set of beliefs or your opinion or your worldview, but it's to call them forward to be a better version of themselves. So he, you know, he's an Irish philosopher living in America, and so he's dealing a lot with like the sort of American paradigm of, of, of republic, a Republican and Democrat or conservative and liberal. And he says, here's the thing, right? A, a meaningful good conversation will never make a, a Republican a Democrat but the Democrat can call a Republican to be a better Republican and the Republican can call the Democrat to be a better Democrat. And that's messy. It's a little bit hard to, to wrap our heads around, but it's about being open to the other. It's about considering the other and considering, our, considering ourselves in that process. And this invitation to the table is also an invitation for us to consider Christ. What is it that Jesus brings to the table? And you know, I think possibly, like there's a ton of this stuff I could talk about, and I could talk about in any other context. It could be secular, whatever, I could talk about it, because these are things the world needs to think about. But this is what we need to think about as a church. What is it to consider Christ in the midst of our conversations, in the midst of how we engage with the world around us, in the midst of how we engage with the other? What does it look like to consider Christ? Because when I see Christ sitting at the table in the gospels, I see a Christ who washes the feet of his followers who bows down in humble service of those that he loves. I see a Christ who claims that there is no greater love than a friend who lays down his life for those that he loves. There is no greater love than just laying yourself down for those that you love. I see a Christ in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 14, that shows us that, we're, that, that everyone is invited to the banquet and that, and that often there are people who choose to turn away from it and reject it. And often they're the ones who look like they've got it together the most. But the invitation is extended to everyone, every broken person, everyone struggling with something, everyone going through some kind of trauma or suffering or or brokenness or whatever. The invitation is open to them. That's what I see in Christ. That's the invitation he extends. So you see, when I consider Christ in the midst of like engagement, I see a Jesus that brings an idea of radical love, peace, inclusion, and generosity to the table. That's what Jesus brings to the table. Love, peace, inclusion, and generosity. He brings a sense of laying down everything that we cling to in order to serve the other. I see a Christ who turns things on their head. That's the Christ I see. And that's the Christ I long to see in our churches and in our world and in our conversations and in the way we go out and do our jobs. That's what I long to see. I see a Christ who models all of this by pouring himself out on the cross, by giving himself. The invitation of Christ is not to flip tables. And that's, I think, is a hard, it's a hard switch to turn off. But it's not to flip tables. The invitation of Christ is to come to the table, to come to the table. And this is what brings us to communion. This is why I think communion is a meaningful meal, You know, I think about the Eucharist. I think of a meal that is the great equalizer where we come with all of our stuff and we come to the table and we only in that moment know the love of a self-giving God. That's what happens when we come to the table. This is what we remember when we come to the table and partake of the meal that He gave to us. And so we have an opportunity this morning to come to the table. And then we have an opportunity this week to go out and to consider what it looks like to invite others to the table. To consider what we bring to the table. We get to look for the movement of Christ in all of our interactions. And I'd put good money on our Facebook looking a lot different by Friday, this coming week, if we could catch something of this.